Hi, I'm Tim Marlow, the Artistic Director of the Royal Academy of Arts in London. You're listening to a podcast from our events programme, recorded live in the new Benjamin West Lecture Theatre. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Royal Academy of Arts. My name is Jessica Rutterford, and I'm the Adult Learning Programmer here. So as part of our Anthony Gormley-related series, we've organised a programme of events titled Where Language Ends, which is inspired by the conversations held by Anthony in his studio with guests from a range of disciplines. These series of events invite you to unpick and consider the wide-ranging themes that are featured within his practice. And we hope that following these series, you're able to kind of go back into the exhibition um, and revisit, explore with new ideas and experience the works in a totally new manner. Um, and I'm delighted now to introduce today's event. And it's a screening of an award-winning documentary called Inside Australia, which showcases Anthony Gormley's 51-figure installation in Menzies, Western Australia. We're also thrilled today to be joined by anthropologist and director of the film, Hugh Brody. A little bit about Hugh before we begin. Hugh is a writer, director, lecturer, and anthropologist. He taught social philosophy at Queen's University, Belfast. He's an honorary associate at University of Cambridge and held a Canada research chair at University of the Fraser Valley. We're thrilled today that Hugh has kindly agreed to do a short talk following the film, and there will also be opportunities for a Q&A after that. So if you do have a question, please do wait for a roaming mic to be brought around. Um, and without further ado, I'd like to pass you on to Hugh, who's going to briefly introduce the film. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Um, in 2001, Anthony Gormley was invited by the International Festival of the Arts of Perth, Western Australia, to make a central contribution to their 50th anniversary festival. And the proposal to Anthony was that he should create a sculpture on the theme of Wagner to go somewhere in Perth city, in some conspicuous place in the city. Anthony's response to this was kind of complete uh, scorn and dismay, really. He said, of course I'm not going to make a sculpture about some other artist, however great, not even about Wagner, and I certainly don't want to make a sculpture or any kind of work that sits in the center of Perth. For many years, in fact, Anthony had had a great desire to create a work in the Western Desert. So he proposed to Sean Doran, who was the organizer and director of the festival, that Sean should provide Anthony with a light aircraft, and he would fly out into the Western Desert and find a suitable place to create his work. And to Sean's great credit, and I think to everyone's complete amazement, this was agreed to. So Anthony set off in this plane and flew east from Perth, looking for, as it were, a canvas on the surface of the outback on which to create his new work. And he eventually discovered a salt lake 600 kilometers east of Perth, deep in, as it were, the nowhere that is the outback of Australia. And there he decided he would make an installation of sculptures. Along the way, I came to make a film with him about this work, and I will describe to you later how this film came to be made and the story of its unfolding process. I met Anthony Gormley in the early spring of 2002. It was at the uh, Hammersmith, at a theatre in Hammersmith, 
and he was with a group of people I knew, and he was introduced to me, and somebody said, well, this is Anthony Gormley, and Anthony Gormley meets Hugh Brody, and Anthony said to me, Hugh Brody, well, I want you to come to Australia with me. For the first lines, he said. I had no idea about this project. I knew his work, but I'd never heard at all about this venture that was already underway. And he urged me to come and see him in the coming days to talk about this thought that we would go together to Australia. So I went to his home in Camden, and he described to me this astonishing, uh, what seemed a crazy project, extraordinarily ambitious, massive project. And he told me that uh, he had imagined two things, two ideals, I suppose, that guided a lot of his thinking. And the first ideal was that he would find an empty space. He would find this ancient landscape with this ancient geology, this blank canvas in the outback on which to create his work. And the other ideal, which sat very uncomfortably with the first one, was that he would, in finding a community of some sort there, would be able to contribute to some form of reconciliation, that he would make a work that brought people together and that celebrated the unity of the human condition or the unity of artistic reality, some of the things he speaks to in the film. And what he had found was that both these ideals, both these visions, were deeply problematic, not to say flawed. There was no empty space out there. It was occupied. It had been occupied for hundreds, if not thousands of years by Aboriginal peoples, by the Wangkatha-speaking peoples of Western Australia. Moreover, there were two different groups that claimed ownership of this area. So it was not just that it was occupied, it was also, within the Aboriginal world, a contested ownership. So it was a very complicated reality, just from the Aboriginal point of view. And then, of course, as the film shows, the context includes multiple other claims, newer claims, colonial claims, to this environment. The sheep farmers, the gold prospectors, the white adventurers who set up Menzies and turned it into a huge boom town and then abandoned it, that they, too, had their claims to this land. So the first ideal, the idea that this was an empty space in the outback, collapsed once he found himself in Menzies, as opposed to standing on the extraordinary Salt Lake. And Menzies is only half an hour's drive from the western edge of the lake. And the second ideal, that he could achieve some kind of reconciliation, that this project could be for all sides of the community, was equally problematic, and he had already sensed early in this work, that there were many, many difficulties that surrounded relationships between the different sectors of the community. And I think it was for that set of reasons, that set of problems, that he wanted me, the anthropologist, to go with him, to go and camp, as he proposed. We should camp together on the shore of the lake. We should meet the people. And I would, as an anthropologist, talk to people, spend time understanding all the different viewpoints, and write an account of this context, a historical anthropological account, which would go 
in a book about the sculptures which was already being uh, envisaged. And in due course, this project of writing turned into a project of filming. Now, early on, before, in fact, I committed to work on a film, and as part of meeting the people in Menzies, I'd arranged to have a conversation with the mayor of the town. Now, this is a town of 80 people, so it's not a very you know, grand position to be mayor, but nonetheless, this was the leading person of the community, and I arranged to meet with him on the veranda of a, an acquaintance's house at the edge of Menzies. We sat down, the mayor came to meet me, we were given a cup of coffee, and he turned to me and his first lines were, without saying hello, without saying nice to meet you, or without saying welcome to Menzies, he said, the Aboriginals is the worst effing people on earth. His opening line. And indeed, the hostility, the fierce racial hostility towards the Aboriginal people in Menzies was palpable. They were not allowed to go into their, in one main section of the bar. They were required to stay out of the garden of the pub. They were despised and loathed by very significant sections of that population. Now, Anthony came along with this idea that he would make a project which unified everybody. But this was not a unifiable community, certainly not at the hands or the will, the artistic and even the great and charming will of Antony. There were deep problems that had arisen in the colonial process. This was a very, very damaged, complicated place. Nonetheless, Antony insisted that he had to have a formal permission to be on the lake and to put these sculptures there and decided, I think quite rightly, that the permission had to come from the Aboriginal community. So another job was to find out how you get such a permission. And I went and met with the lawyers representing the Aboriginal people and their land claims with the government. They expressed a sort of bewilderment. They didn't really know how we would get permission. But somebody told us that there was an elder called Paddy Walker, who in fact is the man who's Older man whose face you see in close-up is very, very difficult to understand. He's talking, in fact, about walking and working as a sheep shearer on the farms. Paddy Walker was the elder in the community, and he was the person we had to talk to. So we arranged to meet Paddy Walker at the edge of the lake. Ant and I went out there, and we found ourselves sitting in a pickup truck in the pouring rain at the edge of Lake Ballard. And in the front of the truck, sat Paddy Walker and another Aboriginal elder, and Anthony and I sat in the back. And Anthony began by explaining what this project was, what he thought its impact would be, how many sculptures there would be, what they'd be made of, how long they'd be there. And the two elders listened to us but politely, and then after a pause, Paddy Walker began to speak, partly in English, which we found pretty hard to understand, mostly in Wankatha, which we didn't understand at all, but the other elder translated for us. And he told us a story. He said that a long time ago, the stars that we call the Pleiades were, in fact, a group of Aboriginal girls 
living in the sky. And what they liked to do, these girls, was come down onto the salt lake and play and dance and enjoy themselves in the beauty of that environment. So they would come up and down from the stars to the lake. And one time they came down and they found lying in wait for them a sort of monstrous male sexualized figure who wanted to have sex with them and who pursued them in a state of great arousal and aggression. And they hid in holes in the rocks and they rushed out onto the lake to escape him. And when they realized that they were not going to be able to escape, they transformed themselves into all the islands that you can see dotted around on the lake. And these islands are the girls from the sky. These are the stars transformed into women who become the landscape. Paddy told us this story. I was, and then he explained, or actually rather the other elder explained, this of course is the dream time. And this is part of a whole web of dream time stories that links this place to all the other places across the Aboriginal world of Western and Southern Australia. I, of course, the anthropologist in me was absolutely delighted by this story. Anthony absolutely loved it as well. But we didn't know quite what, what this meant for us. But two things seemed to emerge. One, that by telling the story, that was the permission. Once we had heard the story, we had received the permission to go ahead. And the other thing I thought was, now that we were embarked on the film, that this story should be the framing story for our film. So when we got underway with the filming, we worked with the white community, with the settlers, with the gold prospectors, the gold diggers, all the different parts of the Aboriginal communities. You can see all the different pieces of the context. But at the center, I went after this story. And I arranged to interview Paddy on camera when he would tell us this story with the same elder helping to translate. So just as we had done in the van, we were going to do it not far from the shores of the lake on a day, on a day when it was not raining. And we got underway with this story, and me asking for the story, and Paddy said, well, there were the girls in the sky, the long pause, and then he said, but I can't tell you this story. This is women's dreaming. And I said, please, I mean, you told us before, but no, this is women's dreaming. You can't have this story from me. You have to get it from a woman. So we arranged with great difficulty to get a woman who was known to tell this story to come and meet with us, um, a separate part of the shoot, and had her in front of the camera, and she brought, in fact, a beautiful painting that was of this story, of her own work, her own art. And she, to camera, said, I can't tell you this story because a woman can't tell this story to men. So we arranged that a woman should take over the uh, kind of directing role and that a woman would speak to her. And then she said, really, this is men's dreaming, not women's dreaming. <laughs> So we're not giving you the story. At which point I realized that there are dimensions to this world of the Aboriginal mind and the Aboriginal relationship with this land that we were not allowed to have. And that was fine. 
But it meant we were left with a film that stays, in a way, on the surface of the context and doesn't get underneath it. And I think that, for me, is still a frustration of the film. But there it is. Meanwhile, the idea that this was a uniting and unifying project persisted. And we kept working with the non-Aboriginal part of the community. And in fact, Anthony scanned a large number of non-Aboriginals, including the mayor, the owners, the main sheep stations, the people you see in the film, others, a couple of hitchhikers who happened to be passing through. Every part of the community was scanned. But as we worked, the white, significant sections of the white community became less and less friendly, and the Aboriginal community became more and more friendly. It was as, it was this, as if, having given their permission, it was now their project. Having established that this is their land, it's their dream time story that gives the meaning and significance of this land. So the sculptures on the lake were them and theirs, even though a significant number of them were not them or theirs. At the end of the last shoot, we did three different shoots over a, quite a long period, we had a party to celebrate the completion of the work and the filming. And we invited all those who'd been involved, all those who'd been scanned, the white people, the mayor, the police. Not a single white person came to that party. All the Aboriginals did. So we had this Aboriginal party to celebrate the sculpture, to celebrate the film. And we realized, or at least I realized, that as this project had evolved, it had evolved towards being something it had never intended to be for the Aboriginal community. It became an affirmation of them for them. And when you stand up on that mound, the high mound you see Anthony standing on, highest island at the western end of the lake, from which you can see over the 10 square kilometers of the sculptures, it's impossible not to think about settlers arriving. As Anthony said, you could imagine people with their dogs. You see the tracks on the lake of the people who've been looking at the sculptures. You imagine settlers and colonists arriving, and you feel that you're in, somehow, a deep colonial history. But then when you look out at the sculptures shimmering in the mirage, that deep colonial history somehow disappears. When you're left seeing Aboriginal people and their ancestors. So you seem to be in the world of the Aboriginal ancestors. And that's what people told us. When we asked them to talk about this project, they said, these are our ancestors. This is our land, and this is us in the Mulga country. So a project that began very much as a, a set of ideas that were from outside, and that I think are vulnerable to the charge, and the charge that has been made against this project, that it's another piece of colonial invasion, in fact can be answered by the way in which a process was followed by Anthony in the community, and then a process of working with people under that permission all resulted in this becoming a celebration of Aboriginal culture and identity and heritage. When this project was first commissioned, the idea was that the 
sculptures, the 51 sculptures would be there for a very limited period of time, and then they'd be taken away. But the attachment to the work in Menzies is so great that a campaign was launched to keep it there sort of forever. And thus it is. The Museum for Western Australia has taken responsibility for it. They've created new facilities, new uh, signposts, made access easier. So it has become a permanent work. And yet, for all that it is permanent, all, for all that it's made of this extraordinarily enduring steel and indissoluble compounds, in fact, it won't last forever because the lake, every so often, floods. This is an area of very, very low rainfall, as you can imagine. But every so many years, there is a huge amount of rain there. And when the rain falls on that lake, the entire thing turns into water, soluble mud. And within this water, there are millions of organisms that are dormant between rains little shrimp-like creatures, billions of them. And huge numbers of birds arrive to feed on these shrimp and to nest on the islands. And as soon as that rain comes, in real torrents, the sculptures will sink down, presumably, uh, and disappear. That hasn't happened yet. There's been one, I think, two years after we finished, there was quite heavy rain, and someone sent me photographs of the sculptures standing an inch or two in water. But they held, they didn't disappear. So this amazing work, which I think is one of Anthony's most pleasing, one of the most beautiful things he's done. I think along with Domain Field, this is aesthetically, for me, his greatest one of his greatest achievements. This extraordinary work that came to be a symbol of Aboriginal ownership of the land will, in due course, sink into the waters of the lake. I think that's a, a wonderful place to end. And unfortunately, we could hear you speak for hours longer, but we do sadly have to draw this to a close. And before we finish, I just want to firstly thank all of you for coming and joining us today. Um, but I'd like to thank you, Hugh, for firstly allowing us to screen this film, but also for such a wonderful and in-depth insight into the kind of behind the scenes and the making. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this recording, feel free to leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. <laughs>